I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Mersham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saadade 13, Kathleen, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Dahlia Schindelin, an Israeli pollster and the author of a new book entitled The Crooked Timber of democracy in Israel. She's also one of the primary voices that has written about the Confederation approach to the Israel-Palestine conflict. We'll be discussing her new book, the work she's done on public opinion surveys in Israel, and the Confederation approach that I mentioned earlier, along with much, much more in the conversation to follow. So, with that being said, let's get right to it with Dr. Dahlia Schindlin. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really, really excited to be speaking with, Dr. Dahlia Schindlin, a political scientist, a public opinion expert, and a political consultant, and author of the recent book, the Crooked Timber of Democracy in Israel, Promise Unfulfilled. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, but nobody's really okay in this region. Uh, we're a region at war and people are, uh, I think everybody's suffering in various ways. Uh, so I'm not, I, I'm no, I'm no different. One of the first things I wanted to ask you was, I, I've seen a few of your interviews over the past few months. And a lot of those interviews, of course, are with those of us in the United States. You're in Israel. What do you think that maybe some journalists, whether they're independent journalists or whether they're involved with uh, various media institutions, what do you think it is that uh, those in the U.S. maybe don't understand about 
Israel and Palestine. Uh, what do you think maybe they miss uh, when they're interviewing you? Well, I think the funny thing is that people in the media are less likely to miss stuff. I mean, of course, if you're not on the ground, you, it's hard to get the vibe. It's hard to understand how people feel. It's hard to see and really internalize what's going on. But I think my problem is not so much with journalists, because at least the journalists know what they don't know. And that's why they're asking us questions, uh, all of us here, hopefully, not just me, uh, Israelis, Palestinians, um, other, you know, other people who live here and know things about the region. I think, you know, the bigger, the bigger or the other community that I would say I think is more susceptible towards not only not understanding this region, but not admitting that they don't understand it, are the millions and millions of people around the world who have an opinion about it, but are not in a profession that requires them to ask questions. Um, or, I mean, I think everybody should be asking questions, but I think there are a lot of people who feel like they have a claim to their uh, approach for what's right or wrong for this region. And I will get into specifics. I don't want it to sound like I think everybody is equally you know, correct or incorrect or everybody is equally guilty of this. But I think of all the activists, you know, both on campuses and on the streets, I think of everybody in general, readers of newspapers, you know, Jewish or, or <coughs> Jewish Americans, Arab Americans, Palestinian Americans, and many people who are neither, but who absolutely know for sure that one side is completely to blame or the other. And it's those kinds of people that I think really get everything wrong <laughs> because they haven't stopped to ask the question, what's actually happening here? They don't actually know the situation here. They're not witnessing it. They're not asking people here for their opinions. They're not necessarily even connected to this region. Some of them maybe haven't even visited before. And when I, and I, I, you know, it's hard for me to put my finger on whom to accuse of that. But I think that sometimes when you see political communities expressing themselves, you pick up on uh, a realization that they're not the ones who have to live with the consequences of whatever it is they're advocating, especially when they're advocating zero-sum approaches to this region. So I know it sounds kind of abstract in general, and I haven't named names, but I think that there have been uh, certainly people on both ends of both spectrums who are guilty of viewing this situation in zero-sum terms, which I think is very dangerous, without asking themselves, what do I actually know about what's happened here? And do I have to live with the consequences? And those are the people that I'm very, very worried about. Journalists, I think, are generally come with much better faith because they have to write articles explaining things that they don't know and they won't know unless they ask questions. I also wanted to give you a chance to maybe give uh, my listeners a brief outline of your new book because I've seen a few interviews with you and you haven't always got to talk about the book, The Cricket Timber of Democracy in Israel. So do you want to give yeah. a preview of that maybe? I really appreciate that because... The book came out on September 18th. October 7th happened on October 7th. And, you know, it was a very short time that I had to communicate about the book, to give some lectures. I had a, a, an extensive lecture tour set up in the U.S. beginning on October 20th, which was largely hijacked and became kind of a lecture tour about the war. Although the sad thing is the book has an awful lot to do with the war. And it's not sad. I, I, it's not that's not really the issue. But the point is, the book it was intended to be a history of democracy in Israel. I, I thought about it while I was working on it as a biography of democracy. Where you know, this, I thought of democracy as an entity. When is the entity born? How does it evolve? How does it change? What are its flaws? You know, ch uh, challenges. You know, in, in, a, in a past uh, age, we would have said handicaps. And I think when it comes to democracy, we can still talk about handicaps. We're not talking about a person. 
And where, what are its missing pillars or missing links? So those are the things that I set out to explore. And you know, the thinking about this began largely in response to a very, very long-term sustained assault on the Israeli judiciary. Many of the international listeners, I think, or people who observe this region tuned into that starting in January 2023, when the current government proposed a series of reforms that would have eviscerated the independence of the Israeli judiciary and basically put it under political control. But that was just the culmination of a process that had been going on for years. And it was a process accompanied by very, very severe, often extreme rhetoric uh, of delegitimizing and even inciting against the Supreme Court, sitting often in in its role as the High Court of Justice, even against the justices themselves or the attorney general or the state prosecutor, essentially a politicized rhetorical attack on the arms, on the on the the judicial judicial system in general in Israel. And then, you know, also as kind of a background to trying to advance policies that would incrementally constrain the authorities and the independence of the judiciary had been going on for years. And I had been alarmed by it and writing about it and researching the roots of why the Israeli leadership would do that and why so much of society would support them in that. And the roots go, you know, at first I thought they went back to maybe the era of political populism, because we see this in other you know, among other illiberal populist leaders, for example, you know, Poland was the big example where the Law and Justice Party made you know a huge effort to undermine the judiciary. I, you know, first maybe I thought it was a more modern manifestation. Then I realized the roots of people's uh, controversial view, though the controversial view of of the role of the Supreme Court in particular went back to the 1990s. And then I had to keep going further back. And then I realized that it touched upon the very identity of Israel and actually was a good metaphor for the entire problem of democracy in Israel. And that problem I saw as a complex story, one that begins with the pre, you know, even before the state was established uh, of the Zionist leadership trying to establish a foothold in the region, make its claim uh, to independence, even though it was a minority at a time when democracy was becoming the global currency, but was generally viewed pre-World War II as a matter of majority rule. So you have a a contradiction right there. And then by the time statehood was acknowledged uh, and adopted by the international community and and announced by Israel, there was already an institutional commitment to a democratic process. But immediately from the moment the state was born, some very fundamentally undemocratic features of its policies and its institutional structure and there, the, and then I wanted to understand the reasons for that. And I wanted to understand how these changed over time. And I realized that while Israelis right now were very concerned about the attack on democracy, in fact, in the earliest decades, Israel was at its least democratic. Israel had about 15% of its own citizens living under martial law, under a military regime. And it, it didn't even have a citizenship law for the first four years, meaning the concept of citizenship itself was murky. It didn't have anything like a constitutional bill of rights. And so there were no civil or human rights grounded in Israeli law in those early years. And many of them were routinely violated, including for Jews. So it wasn't only a Jewish Arab story. And then there were certain historical processes that led to improvements on some of those democratic indicators. And then in the 1990s, we see some advances for democracy and even liberal democracy. And as I looked at that era, I noticed that it went hand in hand with progress towards uh, something like a peace process for Israelis and Palestinians, even though it was you know, a checkered process in the end. But, it, in, but the, it, the movement towards more liberal democratic values 
was understood as something that was conditional on ending Israel's control over the Palestinians. And then you have a kind of peak and a breakdown within, you know, within about a decade in which democratic and liberal values come under attack once again. And so I thought it was an interesting story. I thought it told us something about why Israel was experiencing the crisis of legitimacy for democracy and for specifically at the time, the judiciary. But I didn't know when I started the book that it was going to turn into a full throttled assault on the judiciary and then a massive civil backlash in favor of democracy. I couldn't have predicted any of that when I began working on the book. In fact, I had finished the first draft of the book just around the time the new government was elected. And so you know, I was putting the finishing edits on the book during the year of Israel's, you know, massive democratic crisis and then uh, movement, pro-democracy movement, which really only changed the most, the final chapters of what was actually happening on the ground, but it didn't really change the entire analysis. And I think that for me, at least the historical analysis, which I found fascinating and I hope the readers enjoy because it's written in a way that is intended to tell a story, you know, with 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 anecdotes and people and characters and, and developments. I think that it helped me uh, understand why Israel had reached the current the, the level of crisis that it did. And I, I, to tie that in, how do you see your book in relation to what's called the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? How does how does the question yeah. of democracy tie into that question? Yeah, yeah. Well, remember, Israel was established in a way that ultimately denied self-determination for the Palestinian people. Now, the question of why it was denied, I mean, we know that the Arab states and the Arab Higher Committee rejected the partition plan, UN Resolution 181 in 1947. Okay, but what happened after Israel was established is that Israel did an awful lot to disempower the Palestinians who were living inside Israel, disen- uh, not exactly disenfranchise them, actually quite the opposite. It was important for Israel to show that they had that it had universal suffrage. The vote being uh, one of the Israel's greatest claims to being a democratic country, but in every other way, you know, they were not granted citizenship right away, even though it was murky because they Israel said they were citizens, but it didn't have a citizenship law to define that. And when they finally did pass one, it would have they had Arabs had to apply for it. Long story. But their citizenship was not equal. Their status on the ground was not equal. And Israel used the the, uh, holdover colonial laws that governed Palestinian life inside Israel in order to essentially, you know, um, dismantle the social structure and the political leadership and suppress, you know, freedom of the media so that they wouldn't be able to develop, establish a political national movement, certainly not inside Israel. Now, uh, those who were uh, in the diaspora, mostly in the Middle East, of course, began a, a, a struggle for liberation, which at the time, was established as uh, a Palestinian national movement intending to take back all of historical Palestine. So, of course, that's, you know, certainly uh, an aim that would have that Israel could not accept. But after 1967, okay, I, I think that the the thing that I uh, tried to establish is really what is where Israel has control. So I'm looking at the country of Israel and what its state controls. In terms of political science, we say, you know, who actually governs, who has the power. I'm looking at the Israeli government. So the Israeli government. Uh, rules over the Palestinian citizens under martial law until essentially just as that that regime ends just as the occupation begins. And so the occupation begins, Israel conquers the West Bank and Gaza and occupies them, of course, East Jerusalem and Sinai and the Golan Heights, and occupies them also under martial law. So it builds a new military regime to govern you know, a new set of people who 
By contrast to the uh, Arab citizens of Israel, who by now are mostly citizens after the citizenship law was passed and most of them had to struggle to get their citizenship, but finally did. Uh, now Israel's governing a huge population of Palestinians who are not citizens and have no civil and human rights or even a claim to them, but they are being governed under a hostile government that, that does not represent them. So you, you move from one era of undemocratic practice to a new era of undemocratic practice, all in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That's in the earlier years. I mean, I, I can't summarize the whole book, but I will say that as time goes on, the occupation represents really, I think, you know, the most obvious, visible, and empirical violation of democratic and liberal principles. I don't think that should be controversial, and I don't think Israel would deny it. The occupation was never never seen as a democratic process, you know, uh, uh, project. Having said that, what Israeli society tried to tell itself was that it was democratic for its citizens and within Israel. But I think that there's an enormous contradiction there because there was no more within Israel the moment Israel began spreading its citizens all over the occupied areas. And so what you eventually have is a single territory governed ultimately by one state, one government. There's only one government that really holds ultimate power uh, over the entire region with people of varying levels of citizenship. Some have full citizenship, some have zero rights. And that is fundamentally undemocratic. And I would go further. I think that Israel cannot look at this, not only not only can't Israel say that these are two separate territories because they're not, Israel's, Israeli citizens are everywhere. It cannot claim that these are two separate regimes. I think Israel, Israelis, again, government, they, people don't have to say this openly, it's just understood that Israel sees itself as a democracy, and then there's that separate regime that of, of the occupation. Uh, many Israelis, by the way, also think, don't really internalize that Israel controls Palestinian life to this day, even before, you know, before October 7th, that the Oslo process floundered and ultimately didn't really give Palestinians ultimate sovereign control, uh, that the withdrawal of settlements from Gaza did not mean that Israel no longer controls Gaza. Israel does control Gaza from the outside. And Israelis don't internalize that. They think that Israel is a democracy, and then there's a Palestinian problem. But I just want to make one last point. What I'm trying to say is that these are institutionally linked. You cannot really pick apart the lines of political control and power or the institutions that govern both societies because they are the same institutions. It's not only the army, uh, the military, you know, uh, governance of Gaza, even you know, or sorry, of 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 the West Bank and you know, the Israeli security forces outside Gaza, every government ministry is ultimately implicated in this undemocratic rule, including the judicial branch and the executive branch and the legislature. So that's why I argue that if we're going to look at the history of democracy in Israel, we can't look at it as democracy here and non-democracy somewhere else. It is the same regime, which is why I have a very hard time categorizing it as a democracy, but I do, you know, as a political scientist, we also know that there are very democratic elements and practices and institutions inside Israel, which cannot be ignored either. Israel does know how to do those democratic practices. So it gets complicated, which is why I, I called it the crooked timber of democracy in Israel, rather than the crooked timber of Israeli democracy, which I should say was the original name until I worked on the book and thought, I need to change that name. I like the title, by the way. Thank you. Uh, the title is a paraphrase on a quote that originally comes from Immanuel Kant, but was, you know, I, I'm not ashamed to say I didn't learn about it from Immanuel Kant, but through Isaiah Berlin, great liberal thinker. And the original quote is from the crooked timber of humanity, 
uh, nothing straight can be made. And I adapted that to say from the crooked timber of democracy, nothing straight can be made. And I think I mean it, you know, in two senses. On the one hand, if, you know, on the one, on the, on one level, I, I think of it as, you know, if the founding material is not sufficiently democratic at the source, you're never going to be able to have a flourishing democratic culture because the problem lies at the source. But I also think that really the way Isaiah Berlin conveys that Kant meant it was that, you know, we're not striving for perfection. We have to accept that the basic material is never going to be perfect uh, and that it can still be improved and, you know, and move in the direction of doing better and becoming more democratic. And that's what I think we can strive for in Israel and everywhere. I mean, I don't think there is a perfect democracy. Certainly don't talk to me about perfect democracy in America. But if we accept that it's not perfect from its, you know, at its basic core, then we then we have to work with what there is and improve it. I wanted to ask you about your work on polls and surveys. What's the type of research that you conduct? How is that research conducted? And, and what can it tell us about uh, both Palestinian views and uh, Israeli views? For the last 20 Five years I've been working as a public opinion researcher, a pollster, and that means that I conduct quantitative and qualitative survey research and, and focus group research and sometimes in-depth interviews. That's in addition to my work in policy and academia or as a journalist. And I've been doing that work in Israel. I began doing that work in Israel on the Israeli elections that were held in 1999. Since that time, or altogether, I should say, I've worked on nine Israeli election campaigns doing public opinion research as a basis for strategic advising. Uh, in addition to that, I've worked in about 15 other countries, you know, trying to do the same thing, look at their political life through the prism of public opinion research, both focus groups and survey research, which gives me, I think, a really, to my mind, you know, fascinating kind of broader perspective about who are Israelis compared to other countries? How do other countries deal with conflict? How does how do their troubles and conflict and uh, or internal issues affect their political life and thinking? How do people think politically? It, you know, I have a perspective on that that goes beyond just Israel or any one country. And uh, I've worked together with a Palestinian polling company, uh, the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, run by my colleague, Dr. Khalil Shikaki, for many years. We've been specifically since about late 2016 conducting a series of joint Israeli-Palestinian public opinion studies that have been done sometimes a few times a year, sometimes once a year or every two years. The last joint study like that that we conducted was in December 2022. But in general, because he continues to work separately and I continue my own work, we often work together just to share information and keep uh, on top, of, you know, keep uh, aware of each other's data. And we we give analyses together a lot. So in other words, I, I'm very uh, I try to stay very, very closely aware of Palestinian public opinion, whether it's part of my projects or not. And I am constantly doing either my own research, again, surveys or focus groups in Israel. And also, I, you know, my expertise is not so much statistics as it is analysis. And so I have you know, develop my own means of analyzing public surveys. So whether they're electoral surveys or surveys on anything else, I gather many of the material that's out there, including my own, and try to, you know, give multi-layered thinking and analysis of what's going on in society. That's in a general sense. And I wanted to ask you, where is Israeli public opinion before October 7th and then after on issues like, say, a peace process or a two-state solution? 
Yeah. Well, I have to say that uh, among both Israeli and Palestinian societies, we had seen really a, a, a particularly low time for anything to do with reconciliation or conflict resolution or two-state solution. And that had been happening for years. Is that especially after the Oslo process uh, fell apart or? Well, there was no one time when the Oslo process fell apart unless you go way back to you know uh, the late 90s and early 2000s. I mean, the Oslo process, some people say it started falling apart in 1995 with the assassination of the prime minister. Others would say it fell apart because of the second intifada from 2000 to roughly 2004. Um, but in, but you know, if you really want to get inside the mechanisms of Oslo, some parts of it continue to this day. For example, cooperation of security forces with the Palestinian Authority in Israel, which just seems that it's up and down, ups and downs, or or the or the geographic designations within the West Bank break, broken up into areas of A, B, and C, where Palestinians basically can or can't move, and and go with with or without permits, and so. You know, those things are still in place today, whether people perceive it or not is a different story. So, no, not exactly. I mean, if you think of I, I personally think that the second intifada was really the beginning of the death of Oslo. And so Israeli public opinion continued essentially to support a two state solution with a majority through about 2010. And Palestinian public opinion went up and down, but was still around half, let's say, on average as a median throughout most of that time and was well over half. A majority of Israelis and Palestinians supported the basic concept of a two-state solution in 2010 and for much of the of the first part of the decade. But after around 2015, 16, 17, both sides started to go to, to decline. Well, no, I mean, the decline began already in the early part of the 2010s. But by the later part of the decade, both sides lost their majority who supported the two-state solution. Certainly by 2018, I think that was the last time we saw a majority on either side of people who say they support even the general concept of a two-state solution. And at present, let's say before October 7th, again, attitudes were pretty much less supportive of a two-state solution than I had ever seen. They were only about in the 40% range among Israelis, lower among Jewish Israelis, like in the mid 30 something percent range of people who support a two-state solution. And very similar, almost a mirror image on the Palestinian side of a total of about in the mid 30% range who supported a two-state solution. All of that before October 7th. And other attitudes with relation to one another were at historic lows. So the level of trust in one another was particularly low. The perception that the other side is interested in peace was really demoralizingly low, if I can say the word demoralizingly, which I just said. And the reasons for that have to do with the complete atrophy or absence of anything like a peace process. There had been no significant political process in place you know, for years. The last serious political uh, negotiation, bilateral negotiation between Israelis and Palestinians was a decade ago, 2013 and 14, under sec then Secretary of State John Kerry under the Obama administration. And so for one thing, Israelis and Palestinians alike had nothing to look up to and not, and not even an, an, an image in their mind of what it might mean for the two sides to negotiate towards a political resolution. During the, the course of from 2009 onward, there were either four, four wars between Israel and Gaza or more, depending on how you count smaller operations, ongoing rocket fire from Gaza to the southern communities in Israel. Those are civilian communities within sovereign Israel, the same ones that got attacked on October 7th, had been living with rocket fire for all of that decade and, of course, much earlier. But the point is, there was nothing like a peaceful situation before that either, you know, before October 7th. And so and you had a government in Israel that was a very hardline nationalist government well before 
the, gov the current government that was established in December of 2022. And so when I say hardline nationalist government, I mean Netanyahu is a proper populist. And he stacked his party with very outspoken, you know, in many ways, extremists within his own party. And then he brought in coalition partners that were even more extreme. And they constantly were trying to outdo each other for who could say nastier things either about the Palestinians or about Arabs in Israel or about the Israeli judiciary or about the Israeli left or about the media. All of these actors were demonized regularly. Every day, the government is hammering home how horrible these figures are, how they're all some sort of an enemy, sometimes putting them in the same basket. And, you know, to the point where you create a, a public environment where nobody wants to be caught talking about things like peace because it sounds almost like you're a traitor, because that's how severe the public environment was in Israel. Now, then you have young people who were socialized into that. Remember, Netanyahu has been in power since 2009. And so young people who were socialized into that, who came of age during that time, to them, the idea of supporting a peace process or a bilateral negotiation or conflict resolution or a two-state solution sounds like a foreign language. Half the time, they don't even understand what you're talking about. We have to explain these things in surveys. In fact, one of the best indicators is that if we ask people in a survey research whether, you know, what you think Israel should do about the West Bank we can't ask that anymore. People actually don't know the term. We have to say Judea and Samaria because that is the term that's regularly used, these ancient biblical terms that indicate total Israeli, you know, historic permanent control, exclusive Jewish control over the region. If we don't use those terms, people won't really understand how to answer our surveys. And so there are many manifestations of this, but um, put it this way, hardline nationalist governments, regular escalations and war and violence lead people to have very little faith in peace, especially when there is no peace process even to speak of. People are reacting to their actual environment. This is a very good lead in to uh, your recent analysis at Haaretz uh, about the two-state solution and the international community calls for uh, a revival of the two-state solution. What is your, your basic analysis on that? What would it take uh, to put that on the map again. Yeah. Well, let me first of all say that I was examining this because the international community and all of those governments that have been expressing their commitment to trying to help this region de-escalate, they're the ones who have been saying we have to get back to a two-state solution. Just to put it, make it clear, I support the right of both people to self-determination in the form of states, but I think they should be two states in an open, cooperative, confederated arrangement. I don't. I no longer think that it's possible or desirable to have a hard partition in the form of the old two-state solution that was developed 25 years ago now. But I accept that, you know, the global powers of this world are talking about a two-state solution, and when it comes down to doing it, maybe they will have to adjust it. But they haven't, you know, they haven't necessarily looked at it that way. And yet, right, right now, what we're seeing is that after October 7th, all of those governments—I mean, primarily America and Western powers. And, you know, Arab leaders as well said, well, the two-state solution is the way forward in the long-term future when they finally got around to talking about that. Because I think in the first few weeks, like everybody, the international community was shocked and was, you know, in the first few days, condemning, busy condemning Hamas for the atrocities uh, of, the, of the massive terror attack on Israeli civilians, and then busy worrying about the level of destruction that Israel was, was wreaking on Gaza and, and Palestinian <laughs> civilians. So, it took a few weeks or maybe within the first month and then government started saying, you know, this is mad. 
we can't let these cycles of violence continue forever. We've got to get back to a longer term peace process in the form of a two state solution. But I am not sure what they plan to do about it. OK, now I started I have to say that I started my inquiry for that article thinking there's no policy. It's all talk. It's just rhetoric. Nobody's going to do anything. And, you know, in the end, I think that I was convinced by the many conversations I had with diplomats and, and people representing the governments that they are genuinely seeking policy. They may not have it yet, or it may be piecemeal so far, and it's certainly not public. I mean, you know, one diplomat said to me, and this, you know, he actually said this on record, so I, I see no reason why I can't quote him, which was a former, let's just say a former uh, U.S. ambassador to Israel, uh, said, there, you know, policy is only what's made public. In other words, by definition, if it's policy, it has to be public. And so I went around asking about half a dozen different governments, what's your policy? And I didn't think I needed inside sources to get it. I wanted to know what their stated public policy was for advancing a two-state solution. And not a single one would give me an on-record statement. Not a single one. In fact, spokespeople vanished. Others expressed annoyance that I had asked. And finally, I had to have off-record conversations uh, with numerous people who gave me great insight but could not really be named. And even then, I would say, it wasn't necessarily clear what those policies were, but at least I was convinced that you know a number of European governments and the European Union and the U.S. and Arabs, you know, certain Arab states do feel more urgency and are looking for at least steps to put substance behind that policy. And we can see some of them that are public. So, for example, the European Union has, or the Council of Europe has agreed that it will eventually, maybe within a half a year, try to hold a peace conference that was at the initiative of Spain um, that will bring the different sides together and really try to reignite a peace process. America is certainly you know, putting some interim steps on the table in terms of what should not be done and has said things like we need to look at the long-term future when we shape our current policy. And one interesting thing that the U.S. did was uh, establish a policy that it's going to block visas for settlers who are deemed to be extremist and violent. And now that looks like a very small thing. And many say, well, it doesn't mean anything because there are very few settlers like that. And whoever they are, they don't care about coming to America, yes or no. But it is a signal that America is willing to put policy steps behind the general direction of clarifying to Israel that settlements represent an obstacle to a peace process and that violent settlement has been a means to intimidate Palestinians, to try to get them to leave their places of residence to try to essentially ethnically cleanse part of the West Bank. And America sees this as you know something that it will take policy steps to prevent. And so that in, in turn has empowered some of the European countries like the European Union foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell, who said, we at the European Union will also try to find ways to place sanctions on those extremist settlers. So there are kind of ideas that are ricocheting. They may be early stage. Uh, you know, Saudi, we saw again uh, reports yesterday that Saudi Arabia is willing to move ahead with normalization towards Israel still, despite everything, if Israel will move ahead towards resolving the issue of Palestinian statehood. So I, I became convinced that there is more urgency, that these international you know, uh, actors are trying to find a role to invade a way, means, actual policy means to, to get back to a longer term peace process that will lead to something like a two-state solution, but they're not quite there yet. I just had three more questions. I want to go through them if we have time. 
The first one is uh, you mentioned the confederated model. That's initially why I, I contacted you. I'm very interested in this idea of a confederation. What do we mean by that? What, what would a confederated model yeah. look like? So broadly, it should be clear that a confederation is not a one state model. It's quite the opposite. It's two separate states, sovereign independent states, but they do agree to share certain elements of their sovereignty to develop certain joint uh, institutions for managing uh, some of the key shared concerns, primarily security, economy, uh, other sort of civilian infrastructure things that need to be managed together, for example, you know, uh, environment, climate, public health policy. Those are the kinds of things that it seems obvious where that they need to cooperate because this is a very tiny territorial unit. Those are aspects, all of the things that I just named that cannot uh, be divided by a boundary and two sides will need to cooperate on them. And there are a few additional principles of uh, of the idea of a confederation that I think, or I have come to, I have become convinced over the years, would uh, help to dismantle some of the biggest obstacles to the old two-state solution based on the idea of hard international partition. Primarily, the fact that people of this region are attached to the entire land, and there is no real way to implement complete ethnic segregation between Israelis and Palestinians, or ethno-national segregation, I should say. There's simply no way to implement it. And increasingly, I don't see that as a liberal approach to conflict resolution, right? Uh, coming from, a, a, you know, if we're talking about my own personal kind of political ideology, I believe that people can live in plural societies by establishing a common basis for human rights and protection for everybody, even if they have separate national identities, which I accept. And therefore, given that, I think that the better approach is to say, well, uh, we can't implement, you know, actual ethno-national segregation anyway. There are at least 170,000 Israelis who would have to be forcibly expelled from their homes in order to have uh, a Palestinian state, that, including the West Bank and Gaza, that does not have any settlers there. Palestinians will never give up on the right of return for Palestinians who were left or were expelled in 1948. It is a fact, no matter how much Israelis say it's not fair, it's not fair. This is not even unique to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. People want the right to come back to their homes. This is, at this point, certainly grounded in international law and backed by the international system over the decades. It does not mean that you can kick Israelis out of their homes. It does not mean you can destroy Israel. And it probably does not mean that a whole flood of Palestinians, you know, millions of people who live abroad could achieve, you know, suddenly move to Israel overnight. What it does mean is that you need a mechanism for people to be able to live on the other side. I say other in terms of their national identity. And there are such mechanisms. They, it's just a matter of disconnecting citizenship from residency, meaning that Palestinians would be Palestinian citizens, Israelis would be Israeli citizens, Jewish Israelis would be, Jew would be Israeli citizens. If they accept the sovereignty and law of the other side, they can live there as permanent residents. They would have the right to vote only in their net place of their national identity. So that you would generally have an Israel that whose government uh, reflects the Israeli population and a Palestine whose government reflects the Palestinian population. But it does give people more freedom of movement and opportunity also to simply have access to the other side. Freedom of movement, by the way, is part of this because it gives people more economic opportunity. It doesn't mean they can, you know, uh, commit attacks because if you or break the law, then you lose, then you can lose those privileges. So it's not a matter of a free for all. It's not a matter of giving up on security. It just means the two sides continue to cooperate on security, but without the framework of one side dominating the other, which we have today. 
The idea is that you have two states established on the principle of equality, both equality of their national claims and equality of their right to independence even though they, and sovereignty, even though they are starting from very different political and economic you know, starting points. Uh, it, it, it assumes that the sides have to build in this kind of cooperation. It also assumes that you're not gonna divide the city of Jerusalem, which was another major sticking point in all negotiations for a two-state solution. How, you know, wh where, what happens with Jerusalem, I think that part of my thinking changed on this when I started to spend more time in Jerusalem and realized that if you really look closely at Jerusalem, it cannot be divided down the middle in any reasonable way. To do so would be a magical feat of engineering that would probably take decades to implement, ruin everybody's life in the meantime, and immediately uh, rip out the economic and social basis for the livelihood, mostly of Palestinians living in East Jerusalem, whose situation would immediately get worse. And so these are undesirable on every level you would have Jerusalem as a shared open city, even if there's a theoretical boundary, either you know, dividing either in the middle of Jerusalem or around Jerusalem, but it can serve as the capital of both states. Israel already has its capital there. Palestinians can have a capital, you know, in the probably in the eastern side. And thereby you you sort of you know chip away at some of the most difficult obstacles towards the old two-state solution based on hard partition. Is this an easy approach? Does it solve everything? No. And I dare the listeners to find me one political solution that resolves all the problems and offers a perfect answer. It is not. But I actually think there's one more advantage that this approach has that the others don't. It's actually quite hopeful. I think that it's much more exciting to think about living in a place where, where each side is able to fulfill its national self-determination you know, quest but also has openness and access both to the full geographic land, but also to getting to know each other. We know that this can work because in Israel, we have two million, nearly two million citizens or residents who are Palestinian. And it's far from perfect. There's a long struggle before anybody can talk about equality. But there is also an amazing level of interdependence, of progress towards improved situation, an improved situation and extremely le low levels of violence between those communities, if at all. We did have a very threatening situation of limited violence in 2021. And it was the first time we saw violence between Israeli, uh, Jewish and Arab citizens since the establishment of statehood. And amazingly, it hasn't recurred. I mean, we're all grateful for that. So there's a lot to think about in terms of what is the uh, uh, realistic policy. But I also think that the two sides desperately need something to look forward to because we're in an extremely dark place right now. The last two things I wanted to ask was uh, first, and this is really brief. So you were mentioning uh, many Israelis uh, only understand this term Judea and Samaria. So are you saying that a lot of Israelis don't even, I guess, recognize that an occupation is happening in the West Bank? And if that's the case, what would it take for that kind of public opinion to change I know that's a speculative question, but these are not short questions at all. These are huge, long, detailed psychological. I'm and sorry, <laughs> that's okay. No, I mean I think that the very the, the the basic answer to why Israelis don't get it is because the Israeli again government, society, media, commentators, influencers, and just dinner dinner table conversations have you know since the 1990s or certainly since the year 2000 when Israel dismantled its settlements from Gaza, the basic understanding in Israel, the basic Israeli point of view or narrative on this stuff is that Israel left. We let the Palestinians govern themselves. Now that is rank 
dishonesty on the part of anybody, you know, uh, consciously purveying that idea who should know better. But for the average citizen, that's what they're told. And that's what they sort of think. And that, you know, many people don't go to Palestinian or certainly don't live a Palestinian life. They don't understand that in some visible and numerous invisible ways, bureaucratic ways, you know, the need for permits, the movement limitations, um, the fact that Israel controls all the crossings in and out of Gaza, except for Rafah, which is coordinated with Egypt, uh, you know, seaports, air, airspace, and electromagnetic fields is not something that most people can see and feel and touch. And in the West Bank, Israelis don't go there other than to visit settlements. And when you go to settlements, they don't realize they're even crossing a boundary because the roads are contiguous. You won't even see a boundary for the most part. You see a sort of a checkpoint, but it's very easy. They don't see how Palestinians live and they don't have to wait at checkpoints. They don't know what it is for Palestinians to try to have to get from a Palestinian city in the West Bank to Jerusalem, you know, for which they can be rejected for permits day after day, you know, time after time, month after month for no, you know, re and with no, they don't have to know the reason. Israelis don't experience that. And they don't realize that the Israeli army has been going into Palestinian areas that under the Oslo Accords were supposed to be completely Palestinian governed, both in terms of security and in terms of civilian affairs. But Israel, the Israeli army has been entering them at will for 20 years. Now, Israel, the Israeli army says we need to for security reasons. We're arresting suspects. Fine. I mean, there may be security reasons, but the fact is there's been nothing like actual Palestinian sovereignty. <laughs> However you want to slice it, whether you want to justify it or not, by any political science account, it doesn't count as anything like statehood. You know, I did my doctoral work on unilaterally declared unrecognized states, and I couldn't include the Palestinians because my definition was that these entities had most of the you know, generally accepted uh, conditions of statehood, except for recognition, maybe three out of four major, major qualities of statehood, people, territory, governance, and the ability to enter foreign affairs, but were not uh, recognized or sufficiently recognized. Palestinians didn't have that. They had people. <laughs> their territory was certainly not under their control. Their government was divided, and their foreign relations are half, you know, largely blocked or or erratic, and limited. And they don't have control over their borders. I mean, there are so many th reasons by which you can't call the Palestinians a state, and Israelis just don't see it and appreciate it. And and how do we change that? It, it's very hard. Somebody has to start telling the truth. I, 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 what I wanted to close on in that regard was, uh, you know, something I've heard you and others say is that right now, you know, a lot of Palestinians in Gaza aren't seeing everything with regards to what happened on October 7th. And many Israelis aren't seeing all the footage of what is happening to Gazans. And this ties into the last question I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, I have had Palestinian guests on, I've had Israeli guests on, and I think when I have a Palestinian guest on, I will have uh, Jewish or Israeli listeners that are suspicious. And if I have an Israeli guest on, I will have Palestinian listeners that are uh, suspicious. Uh, so I guess what I want to ask you is, what do you want to say to, say, a Palestinian American that's listening to this? How can we bridge these gaps? What do you want to say to the other side? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm not sure if I even see them as another side. I see these people, I see Palestinians in this region as part of the region that we share. Um, I believe in their right to self-determination, just as I believe in the right to Jewish self-determination. I think we have to do that in partnership. I don't. I think that the first thing Israel needs to uh, understand for the long term is that Israel should, cannot, I mean, can, but it should not ever be dominating another people or preventing their self-determination. 
I think that as individuals, everybody should uh, should live equally and with equal human rights protection, and that to the extent that Israel violates though either of those, I will continue to oppose the policies of the Israeli government. Second thing, I think that we do need a long-term political resolution to the conflict based on those same principles, equality, partnership, mutual self-determination, uh, openness, pluralism. And third thing, that I'm devastated by what Israel's doing in Gaza. I mean, I was devastated on October 7th. You know, the attacks on Israeli sovereign territory and civilians or, or even soldiers who were not in active combat is a violation of all norms of international law and human decency. And Israel had to retaliate because it had to stop an active ongoing attack. And I think any country would have done that. But what's happened since then is such a severe a devastation, you know, mass punishment of the entire civilian population, 85% of Gazans displaced, half of Gazan buildings, just Gaza's buildings destroyed, you know, the entire health system destroyed, hospitals, schools, churches, mosques. I mean, I, I don't need to tell your Palestinian listeners what's happening in Gaza, but I want them to know that there are Israelis who oppose this. There are Israelis who think that this war has gone way too far, that it is punishing civilian the civilian population. I, it's very hard for me to take a position on the international law definitions of whether Israel has you know, done the things it was accused of in The Hague. But I do know that the not sufficient precautions have been taken in this war to protect Palestinian civilians. And we have plenty of indications that Israel has used the civilian population as part of its strategy uh, by denying basic provisions for civilian life. And I, as an Israeli, think that's wrong. I want the war to end. I want a ceasefire. And I want to begin rebuilding and eventually towards a, a you know political final status, political resolution of a conflict that will never, maybe never be resolved, but I think can be contained politically rather than always speaking in the language of military force, which we have proved, I think, on both sides, not only doesn't work, but degrades us as human beings. People who commit these kinds of things, whichever side they're from, are degraded. I do want to add, you know, that. You know, I oppose what the Israeli government is now doing in this war, as I said, and I think that we can't look at October 7th as having ended on October 7th. The hostages still being held who are being held, again, a violation of international law and human decency need to be released, just as any attacks on civilians need to end. That's something I've heard from a lot of guests, that uh, there's only going to be political uh, political solution at the end, not a military one. I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax News. How can my listeners keep up with your work? Thank you. They can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at D-A-H-L-I-A-S-C. That is my Twitter handle. I write regularly at my column at Haaretz in English, and I write in many other places. I, I do have a website, but I will be, it's not updated right now. I will be updating it soon. The URL is dsopinion.com. In the future, I'm going to have all of my articles there. <laughs> right now, it's a bit out of date. And um, yeah, I mean, I would be honored for people to take interest in the book, of course, The Crooked Timber of Democracy in Israel, in case anybody didn't hear. And, uh, and I think that's it. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dahlia Schindlin. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I should have some new content up this week on the Patreon. Two uh, pieces of bonus content, short but sweet. And uh, yeah, 
I need your support to keep this show going. I only have one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson, but otherwise this is listeners supported. So kick me some cash at patreon.com slash parallax views. One last time, patreon.com slash parallax views. And with that being said, 